0: Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, thank you for this good attendance. Thank you for your faithfulness over 30 years, good health, and bringing wonderful women to this study and those willing to be in leadership and bringing Terry Dovey into my life and uh, just all that you have done to make this ministry possible. I cannot thank you enough. And thank you for people who desire to know your word and to go in deep. Um, Because this is not a superficial Bible study by any means. And thank you that they're willing to do homework and to to find those nuggets themselves. That's the important part. Lord, um, I just ask now that you would go before me. Help me to think clearly this early in the morning. And and may everything that is said truly honor you and your son, who alone deserve all the glory and honor and praise now and forevermore. (laughs) And just have your will in every heart here. Help us to be able to focus and not think about the food, but to focus on the, the spiritual food before the physical food. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're opened up to Daniel chapter 12, right? You knew that's where we'd be. I'm going to cover a whole chapter in one lesson. <laughs> that's not too hard because there's only 13 verses. Chapter 12 is the crowning chapter of the book of Daniel. And, of course, it is also its conclusion. You know, there has been a lot of gloom and doom. A lot of gloom and doom presented to the old prophet. Well, how old is he now? How old is Daniel? About 90. Yeah, early 90s probably. But this last part of his fourth and final God-sent revelation told him and told Israel through him and told us, through the scripture, that there is a light at the, the end of that long, dark tunnel. The theme of this last chapter of this extraordinary book, the book of Daniel, the theme for the last chapter is hope for tomorrow. And that's also the name of my lesson, hope for tomorrow, which is the sure hope, not just a maybe hope, it's a sure hope, of resurrection and glorification, glorified bodies, for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. That hope is of an everlasting afterlife in God's presence. That's a great hope, isn't it? Hope for a better day is especially important for those who suffer and see no change in their circumstances in this life. And there are a lot of Christians suffering in our world today. We are so privileged to live in this country. But Daniel, he had known a lot of suffering in his life, had he not? From when he was just a young teenage boy, probably 13, 14 years old, he had been taken from everything he had ever known, including his own family. And he had been placed as a slave in a foreign pagan land. He had been uh, um, almost chopped into pieces. Remember that? Because of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Of course, he had his manhood taken from him. Almost been chopped into pieces. And then he had actually been thrown into a den of lions. His peers hated him. And why did they hate him? Because he was so righteous and godly. And they hated him for that. And his own people. This is the worst part. His own people brought him great sorrow because they lacked genuine repentance for their rebellion against God, which is why they were in Babylon in captivity in the first place. And they never really repented. And also, he was sorrowful about how few had returned to Israel when given the opportunity to do so, when God used Cyrus to issue an edict so that they could go back to the land. Just a small percentage of them did that. He'd also been given many revelations concerning the future for his people. And those revelations, if you think back through them, they were super depressing. Israel's suffering and her domination under a long line of self-centered, egotistical, fighting Gentile kings... Was going to continue. It wasn't going to end when they were allowed to leave Babylon. It wasn't going to end. It was going to continue and continue and continue and all that while get progressively worse. I mean, he heard about a vile king, Antiochus Epiphanes, and then he heard about this vicious king of fierce countenance, the Antichrist. So it was really super depressing. If that series of prophecies had been all that God had left him with and left Israel with and left you and I with, there would be, I mean, that would be bleak, right? And there would be no light at the end of the tunnel. But God did not leave Daniel there. He didn't leave Israel with a message of bleakness and, you know, not very happy ending. He didn't leave you and I without hope. He gave the contents of Chapter 12, which actually fit very well with these words. And see if anybody can tell me where these words come from. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Very good. Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. That's how that novel begins. And that appropriately describes chapter 12. Our outline for this chapter... Consists of six parts. We're going to look at tribulation. We continue to look at the tribulation in verse 1. Then the hope comes in. Because in verse 2, we're going to look at resurrection, bodily resurrection. Verse 3, glorification. Verses, uh, or Verse 4 is preservation, and that's talk, talking about the book itself being preserved. And then we're going to look at duration. We get a lot of time frame things in verses 5 to 8. And completion in verses 9 to 13. And you will get, if you didn't already, you should get your lesson today. Because I sent it out last night. Should have it today, this afternoon. So let's begin by looking at tribulation, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time shall Michael, Michael, stand up. And guess what? When Michael stands up, somebody else goes down. (laughs) Michael shall stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. Now this is Gabriel speaking to Daniel. So who are thy people? Israel, the Jews, Daniel's people. And there shall be a time of trouble or a time of distress such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. Now that's, of course, speaking of the great tribulation the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. And, uh, and at that time, thy people shall be delivered. There's the good news. Every one that shall be found written in the book. What book is that? What book? The Lamb's Book of Life. Well, the words at that time, which are in that verse twice, tell us that the uninspired chapter division between chapter 11 and chapter 12 is less than satisfactory. You know, the chapter divisions aren't God-inspired. Men put them in for our convenience. So we could say turn to chapter 12, verse 3. Okay? So it's less than satisfactory um, because it continues to talk about the information concerning the final years of the reign of the Antichrist. However, having said that, I go on to say, in defense of those who did create the chapter divisions, the last section of Daniel 11 had highlighted the military and political career of the Antichrist, while the beginning verses of chapter 12 uh, really highlight his, or the focus is on his persecution of Israel rather than his battles with nations. So, That's a good place to have put the chapter division. Um, I'll tell you one thing, we don't hear any more about the kings of the north and the kings of the south in chapter 12. Aren't you glad to be finished with those guys? (laughs) No more of those kings. Um, Also, in a sense, we could say that chapter 11 presents the last days more from the human perspective of things, whereas chapter 12 gives us the end of the tribulation from the divine perspective. And this difference is immediately obvious in verse 1 when Gabriel speaks of another spiritual warfare that is going to take place at that time. What is that time? The time of the tribulation. Now, we had another, he told uh, Daniel about spiritual warfare back in chapter 10 when he was delayed in bringing. Daniel's answer to his prayer from God, and he was delayed by the prince of Persia. Remember, he talked about that spiritual warfare where there's going to there's be another one during the, um, another major one during the time of the tribulation. Michael, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people, he is like the guardian angel, the only archangel that we know of for sure. Um, he, he's, he's the guardian angel for the nation of Israel, he got to really, he's, he's powerful. He's had a lot of battles, hasn't he? Still going on today. Well, he's going to stand up because it will be God's appointed time to initiate Israel's time of trouble, her time of distress, the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. Those last three and a half years are going to be preceded by a great invisible warfare in the atmospheric heavens. Men won't see it, just like we don't see what's going on up there today. But nonetheless, it will be taking place in the heavenlies. And it will be between Michael and the holy angels and Satan and the fallen angels. Now, we don't have a lot of information about that battle here in this verse, do we? But we get more from Revelation. John told us about this battle. He was inspired to write these words. He says, this is Revelation 12, starting at verse 7. He said, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. We know who the dragon is. And the dragon fought and his angels. That would be the fallen angels, the demons. And prevailed not. Who won? Michael. So who's stronger? Michael or Satan? Lucifer. Michael is stronger. Love it, don't you? I love it. Why is Michael stronger? Who's on his side? God, of course. So um, the dragon prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. Speaking of atmospheric heavens. You know, to this point, the middle of the tribulation, Satan has been. The prince of the power of the air. I think a lot of times when people think they see UFOs and strange things, they're getting a glimpse of something going on up there and, you know, with a spiritual element. It says, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Okay, so Michael wins in the middle of the tribulation at the three and a half year mark. He wins the spiritual warfare, and the outcome of it is that Satan is cast to the earth, and all the demons they're confined to planet Earth. And of course, he's furious about his defeat, and he takes out his fury against the ones he's always taken out his anger on the woman. It says in Revelation 12:13, who is the woman? She symbolizes Israel, of course. He's going to take his out. He's going to vent all his fury on Israel. And he's going to do this through the empowerment of the Antichrist, who will be a ready tool in his hands. And it will be at this point in the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, that the benevolent mask, the hypocritical mask of the Antichrist is going to be stripped away. Up to this point, everybody thinks he's just wonderful, right? Charismatic, and he's solved all the world's problems, and he's made peace in the Middle East, and the mask is going to come off. Now he's empowered and, I think, possessed by Satan himself, and his true evil character and his motives are going to be on full display. Unfortunately, most people will still follow him, won't they? Well, you might ask the question, how could the protector of Israel, Israel's prince, who stands guard over Daniel's people, be the one God will use to precipitate the time of Israel's worst suffering? And the answer is given to us in the second half of verse 1. It's because the unprecedented distress of Israel in the great tribulation is what it's going to take to finally bring about her deliverance. Her salvation, the worst of times, will be used to bring about the best of times. Therefore, God has pre-assigned Michael, Israel's protector, to precipitate her time of suffering by casting Satan to the earth. Michael probably knows about this. He can read, he's read the scripture, and he's waiting for this day when he will stand up and cast Satan to the earth. And this will begin the beginning of Israel's uh, salvation. So I compared Michael yesterday to an OBGYN. I bet you've (laughs) never heard a comparison like that before, right? (laughs) So Where are you going with this one? He's going to be like the physician who purposely breaks the water sack of a woman as she nears... Time to give birth. It's, have you ever had your water broken? I've had mine broken and I've had it broken naturally and, you know, by the doctor. As soon as your water breaks, that time of suffering suddenly intensifies, doesn't it? Really quickly. But the pain will result in the joy of new life. So Michael is like an OBGYN. <laughs> <laughs> You tell that to your husband, he'll go. <laughs> so the, the persecution, the affliction, the opposition, the dictatorial authority, the cruelty of the Antichrist reign is going to be, it will be a time of unparalleled anguish and pressure on everyone in the world. But particularly on those who are the objects of Satan's evil hatred, which, of course, are the Jewish people and the the land of Israel. And thrown in will be the Christians, all those who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. But despite all that, despite all that, God sent these words of hope to Daniel. He says, at that time, thy people shall be delivered. And then there's a clause, everyone that shall be found in the book. Written in the book. So that promise about his people being delivered is not for every individual of Jewish heritage, right? It's for those whose names are written in the book of life. How do you get your name written in the book of life? Yeah, You need to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, a personal relationship with him. Repent of your sins and ask him to save you. Jew or Gentile, that's how you get your name written in the book of life. But we do know also that Israel corporately as a nation, she will be saved as a nation. I'll talk more about that later. But contrary to, to what some teach, not every Jew alive at the time of Christ's return will be saved. Only those Jews who during the tribulation come to faith in Christ. Not every Jew will be saved. Um, the apostate Jews will be destroyed, just like all unbelieving Gentiles. All unbelieving Jews will be destroyed and will not go into the millennial kingdom. That's why that all all that is left will be saved Israel, saved Jews, and the nation as a whole will go into the millennial kingdom saved. Israel will be what kind of a nation? Christian. Guess what? All the nations will be Christian nations. Won't that be wonderful? No wonder it's called a time of refreshing that will be refreshing. Um, so there will be there will be the believing remnant of Jews on earth at that time who will have either already put their faith in Christ during the course of the tribulation. you know if they put their faith in Christ before the tribulation, they'll be part of the church and I believe, Firmly, that the church is raptured before the seven years of the tribulation. The church wasn't in the first 69 weeks of Daniel's 70 week prophecy. She's not going to be in the 70th week. The church is raptured, so any Jews who get saved, Carol, before that time will be part of the church. They are part of the church and they'll be out of there. So Jews who come to faith during the tribulation, and many will, which is wonderful, many Gentiles will be saved. It'll be the greatest revival this world has ever seen. But there's going to be 144,000 Jews we know saved in the first three and a half years. And they're going to be like flaming Apostle Paul's witnesses to the Gentiles of the world. Can you imagine 144,000 Pauls on earth? No wonder there's going to be a great time of uh, revival in the earth. Well, I was wondering, how did those 144,000 get saved? Probably through the testimony of the two mighty witnesses, whoever they're going to be. And we can go on you know, speculating about that. But they're going to have a powerful ministry to Israel. And uh, anyway, it's exciting to think about that. So they'll be part of it. And then there will be many who will also have their, their hearts plowed up and ready to receive Christ when he does appear at his second coming. The Holy Spirit will be working on their hearts, and as soon as they see him, they'll repent, they'll mourn for him as an only son, and many Jews will be saved at that time. But as I said, all apostate Jews, meaning those who don't believe, will be destroyed, and they will not go into the millennial kingdom. But the sure hope for Israel is that her purging will someday be complete. It's just too sad it's going to take such harsh purging Nothing else has worked, not even the Holocaust under Hitler, worked to cause her to repent. It's going to take the Antichrist to and Satan being possessed by Satan to bring her purging, and uh, finally she will be delivered. Well, there is a second aspect, aspect to her sure hope, and that is of resurrection. It's also a sure hope for us, isn't it? Resurrection. Let's look at that in verse 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Isn't that one of the most precious things to read that there can be? Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, and here it's not quite so happy, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, this verse is a direct reference to bodily resurrection, to physical bodily resurrection, not just a spiritual kind of a thing. The body arises out of the grave. That is one of the most wonderful promises to the believer that there is. You say, one of? Isn't it the most No, the most wonderful promise is that when the believer leaves this earth at the moment of death, our souls are immediately in the presence of the Lord. That's the greatest, that's the most wonderful promise. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. You know, C.S. Lewis corrected those who say that man has a soul. He said, no, man is a soul. He has a body. Think about that. That is so true. We are a living soul. That's the real us is our soul. We have a body. And one day, and one day the body will go to sleep, right? There's no, te- no biblical teaching about soul sleep, but there is biblical teaching about the body sleeps. The body sleeps, but even it will be one day raised in glory. Now, that's great news, isn't it? That is really great. It doesn't get any better than that. Daniel 12.2 is just one of a number of Old Testament passages that teach the doctrine of bodily resurrection. So it's not just a teaching that was reserved for the New Testament. When Jesus rose from the dead, they should have said, you know, oh, yeah, you know, that's all over the Old Testament that everybody was shocked about, a bodily resurrection. You know, Abraham had confidence in the resurrection from the dead, bodily resurrection. How do I know Abraham believed in bodily resurrection? Exactly, Isaac. He was willing to obey God and offer Isaac because he knew God would keep his promises. He promised that through Isaac he would have descendants as the stars of the heaven. So how is he going to do that if Isaac is dead because he had didn't have any grandchildren yet, you know. Um, so he knew that if he willingly killed Isaac, he would rise back from the dead. So he believed in bodily resurrection. Uh, Job, now Job was the first book ever written. Job lived before Moses. He said this, this is amazing. He said, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Isn't that amazing? He knew that his Redeemer lives and he's, he's going to stand here on the earth one day. And then he says, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. How did he know that? Hmm. Smart guy. Some of you want me to teach the book of Job next year, don't you? I, th- I, he- I heard that. I thought, you know what, if it took me two years to get through 12 chapters, how many years is it going to take to get through 42, I think, Joe? (laughs) Hmm. Also, Isaiah predicted that dead men would live again and that bodies would arise. That's Isaiah 26, 19. Hosea, speaking for God, said this. He said, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Hosea thirteen fourteen, And then we know when we studied our life of Christ, we know that King David, speaking on behalf of Christ, predicted Christ's resurrection from the dead. Christ is the Holy One. He said this in his inspired words of Psalm 16. My flesh, now he's speaking for Christ. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in Hades. You know, when Jesus died, his soul went to the paradise section of Hades. And he set captivity free, took him up to heaven. But then it says, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. He knew, you know, his body. This, this is all about the resurrection. His body wouldn't corrupt. Why? Why? Because it would be raised on the third day. And corruption doesn't start till the fourth day. But I don't think Jesus' body would have ever, ever corrupted. Because he was sinless. So Gabriel's words to Daniel. About the bodily resurrection of believers. That was not a revelation of something new here. This is not new teaching. And, and notice in verse 2. That the dead are referred to as being asleep. In the dust of the earth. Now sleep is is one of the beautiful pictures for death in the Bible. But it is only used for believers. believers. The ugly word death is what is used for unbelievers. But sleep is what is used for, because it's true. Our bodies just go to sleep for a while, awaiting the day they'll hear that voice and in a flash be changed. The angelic messenger was telling Daniel that believers who die during the tribulation, will be bodily raised from their graves to enjoy what kind of life? Everlasting, Everlasting life. Believers who survive the tribulation in their physical bodies, they've survived all that. They, they will um, enter into the kingdom in their mortal bodies. You know, there will be mortals living in the kingdom. Everyone who goes into the kingdom will be saved. So it'll start out great. Um, Now they'll have children born with the Adamic sin nature, so sin will still be present. Uh, And everybody in the millennium will have to also make a choice. You'd think it'd be easy. Jesus is there right in front of them. He's the one reigning over the whole world. You'd think it'd be easy to accept him. That just shows you the depravity of the human nature that so many will rebel against him at the end of the thousand years. Isn't that something? But anyway, everyone going in um, who survived the tribulation, who saved, will go into, their, into the kingdom with their earthly bodies. Um, the tribulation saints who died, their bodies will be resurrected. You see your charts? At the end of the great tribulation, that's when they'll have their uh, resurrection or their rapture or whatever you want to call it. And also they'll be joined by all Old Testament saints. At the same time, the time of the Lord's second coming, All the Old Testament saints, from Adam on to whoever the last one was, um, they will all be resurrected at that same time. Now, believers of the church age have already been resurrected. They were resurrected at the rapture before the tribulation began. So there's going to be a lot of people in the kingdom in earthly bodies, and then there's going to be a lot of people in the kingdom in glorified bodies. If you're a member of the church, we're going to live for a 1,000 years in the kingdom in our glorified bodies. Great, huh? On this earth, it'll be different because the curse will be done away with, by and large. But that's just exciting. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? Well, after revealing the good news of the resurrection of the righteous, Gabriel then mentioned the resurrection of the unrighteous, the unsaved, which will be a resurrection of shame and everlasting, you see, there's that word again, everlasting contempt. This is the first mention, Daniel 12 to first mention in the Old Testament of a dual resurrection for the saved and the lost. Unbelievers are just not annihilated. Okay. Um, they just—they don't go out of existence. They too will be resurrected. They will be resurrected bodily. Therefore, when they're in the lake of fire, it's in their resurrected bodies, not just their souls. Their bodies. And the resurrection. And now, if you just had this verse to look at. Um, you would think that both resurrections of the saved and the unsaved or the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints and uh, all the unsaved happens at the same time. That's what it sounds like in in this verse. But we know that those resurrections are not going to be at the same time. And again, how do we know that? Well, we know that from the book of Revelation, which tells us that the resurrection of Old Testament saints will, um, I'm sorry, of of, uh, unbelievers will not take place until After the thousand years of the kingdom. When will unbelievers be resurrected? After the millennial kingdom. At which time they will appear before the great white throne judgment. Now there are those who teach that the word everlasting. Which in Hebrew is olam. O-L-A-M. That it doesn't really mean everlasting. That it means for just an age. Um, that word is used here in reference to the afterlife, isn't it? Whether it's the afterlife in heaven or if it's the afterlife in hell, it's the same word used. It's also the same word that is used of God himself. God is olam. He is everlasting. So those who suggest, and there are a lot of people who suggest that hell is not going to be everlasting that somewhere along the line, God's going to give them a second chance. Now, I wish in my flesh, I wish that was true. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Um, but those who suggest that need to think about this. If hell is not everlasting, then neither is God. Because the same word is used to describe both. And there is, we all know this, there is no doctrine in the scripture more hated by unbelievers than the doctrine of everlasting punishment. Would you agree? I just think how how could a loving God send people to hell forever and ever? Well, that was never His intention. You know that. But and it, of course, it was this teaching that um, that turned Charles Darwin. From God. This is the teaching that turned him away from accepting God and instead coming up with his imaginary evidence for his theory of evolution, which he even reneged on at the end of his life and said, It's just, you know, he, I told you this before, but he said a peacock feather, one peacock feather made him sick to his stomach because it shows intelligent design. You know, look at a peacock sometime. And that just happened. Over millions of years, by chance, started out in a mud puddle and you got this beautiful peacock feather. I mean, I could give you lots of examples, but I love peacocks. But that's what Charles Darwin said. Um, Nevertheless, the doctrine of no matter how much the world hates it, the doctrine of everlasting hell is found in both the Old and the New Testaments. And it was verified by Christ himself. When we studied the life of Christ, remember how many times we said that he spoke more about hell than he did? about heaven now was that because he was just mean-spirited no the reason he talked more about hell is because he lovingly was trying to warn people you don't need to go there it's simple it's free I'm gonna go there for you you know I'm gonna suffer an eternity of hell for you and all you have to do is accept, accept my free gift don't go to a place that wasn't even prepared for you in the first place where what was hell prepared for Satan and and the fallen angels. Uh, And this, of course, if you think about it, this is the whole reason for Christ's incarnation. Why did he come to earth and take upon himself flesh? Why did he come to earth? In order to die. He came to die so that we don't have to pay the wages of sin, which is eternal separation from God. So if hell isn't real, why did Jesus come here and why did he have to die? See, Christians who say there is no hell and then ask him that question. Again, we get to logic. It just doesn't make sense. The Bible distinguishes between two resurrections. That's what you have in your chart. There's the first resurrection. And trust me, believe me on this, you want to be part of the first resurrection. If you're not sure about that, come see me afterwards. I'll give up my meal to talk to you about that. You want to be part of the first resurrection. Um, And then there's the second resurrection. You don't want to be part of that one. They're both described in Revelation chapter 20. The first resurrection concerns only believers and it is to everlasting life, which means everlasting. Wow. You mean everlasting? Yeah, (laughs) everlasting. And those involved in it will escape the second death. What is the second death? The first death is physical death. The second death, is being thrown, standing before the Lord God at the great white throne judgment and hearing the words, depart from me, I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you. Sad part about that is that many are going to say, Lord, Lord. I was in a church forever. I I taught Sunday school. I sang in the choir. I did this and I did that. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. You never moved it from here to here, 18 inches down. (laughs) That's the worst part, isn't it? Many are going to hear that. Many. He didn't say a few. He said many are going to hear that. The first resurrection is comprised of six groups of people, and it will occur at four distinct periods of time, all of which will be prior to the millennial kingdom. All believers will be resurrected before the kingdom. The second resurrection will occur after, as I just told you, after the thousand year kingdom. It's a single event in which all unsaved from all ages will be raised from their graves at one time to then appear before the great white throne judgment and be sentenced to the second death in the lake of fire. All right, let's move on and look at more sure hope, which is glorification, verse 3. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. I read that and I think of twinkle, twinkle, little star, or this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Daniel 12:3 directly speaks of a select group. Now, this is directly speaking of a, a, a small select group in Israel during the tribulation, but indirectly it speaks to all of us. This is true for all of us, but directly he's talking about Israel and the tribulation. There are going to be some in the tribulation who are wise in the sight of God, actually many, because they will lead others to righteousness. Well, how do you obtain righteousness? There is no way other than exchanging your sin for Christ's righteousness, right? You give him your sin and he gives you his righteousness. That's the only way to obtain righteousness, Because all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. So they're going to be saved. They're going to come to faith in the Lord Jesus during the tribulation. Those who lead them to Christ are wise. In the midst of that troublesome time, unprecedented troublesome time, there will be those who will do this by way of their bold witness. And you'll have to be bold There's a lot of bold people living in the world today. I don't think I'm nearly as bold as a lot of people. I just read on the Internet last night that one of the Christians in another country, the day he got saved, he was beheaded. The very day he got saved, he was beheaded. They know the risk for them in other countries. Um, So these people in the tribulation, they're going to know. It could be their end if they lead somebody, you know, if they come to faith and then if they lead somebody else to faith, but they're going to have a bold witness for the gospel and they're going to have a a lifestyle example in their conduct and in their attitude. Those who let their light shine in those unequal days of darkness by leading others to Christ, the promise here is that they're going to shine brightly forever more in eternity the hope that is given them and others like them think of Daniel thrown in the lion's den think of the three Hebrews thrown in the fiery furnace think of the Maccabees and all these people living in the tribulation and all down through the ages the, the promise is that throughout eternity they will shine as the brightness of the firmament and as the stars forever and ever so Daniel, verse, chapter 12, verse 1, was about the coming tribulation, continuing to tell us more about that. Verse 2 was about the sure hope of resurrection, and verse 3 contains the great news of the believer's glorification. The Lord will recognize those who turn others to salvation particularly at a time when to do so could easily cost them their own lives. These will be the masculine, the Hebrew word. It sounds like masculine, doesn't it? They will be the masculine, You know what that means? The wise men. They will be the wise men of those last days. Verse 3 also indicates, I don't know if you pick up on this, but there will be, there will be degrees of glorification in heaven. You know, we, we do know there are going to be degrees of punishment in hell. Um, I taught on that before, but the Bible teaches degrees of, of uh, punishment. There's also going to be degrees of glorification in, in heaven. Now, of course, every believer is going to be glorified. You know that? For whom he justified, him he also glorified. So everybody who's saved is going to receive a glorified body. You don't need to worry about that. But there will be degrees of glorification, and that's not just true for tribulation saints. It's going to be true for saints of all the ages. And The Apostle Paul actually wrote about this, and I do want you to see this with your own eyes, so would you turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul wrote about degrees of glory and brightness in the heavenly bodies. You know, the sun, the moon, the stars. He even wrote about degrees of uh, glory and brightness between the celestial bodies. So are you there? 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 40. Here's what the inspired words of the Apostle Paul, he says, there are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. 40, 15, 40. Now, what does that mean? means there's heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies. We're living in what kind right now? In case you didn't notice. <laughs> terrestrial bodies. So he's saying there's you know heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is still a glory about these bodies, right? They're fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't know how it works. I don't know how my heart keeps beating. <laughs> I'm just glad it does. I don't know how my brain works and tells my hands to move and all that. But um, there's a glory of one and there's a glory of the other. And then he goes on and he talks about the heavenly bodies, you know, the physical heavenly bodies of the sun. He says there's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. And then he says about the stars even differing. And for one star differeth from another star in glory. So he's saying here that not only are there degrees of glory and brightness between the sun and the moon, And the stars, but even the stars, vary among themselves in their brightness and in their glory. Now, men have known that for thousands of years, haven't they? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that. You look up in the sky at night, for one thing, you know the sun shines brighter than the moon. And we have found out the moon doesn't shine at all. It just reflects the (laughs) glory of the sun. Um, But at night, you can look up and you see one star is really bright. And then others you can just barely see, right? Right? And we have found out over the years that some stars are huge and some are little, etc. So this is nothing new. But what is really interesting is that the analogy that Paul presented next in verse 42. Look what he wrote next. He's comparing the glories of the heavenly bodies. And then he says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. <coughs> you see, in our glorified bodies... We will all know God to the fullness of our capability to know him. However, our capacities will vary. And that variableness is determined while we are alive here on earth. And it will be based on our service for the Lord. It will be based on our spiritual maturity It will be based on our suffering for righteousness' sake, and it will be based on our faithfulness. You know that's one of the greatest characteristics to God is you know that is required of a steward that a man be found what faithful. We are all we will all glorify our Lord, but to varying degrees. Um, But the wonder of it all, the wonder of it all, is that there will be no one. Who, lacks, who, who senses a lack within himself or herself because every one of our um, our capacities will be filled to the brim. Let's say we have a bunch of different cups and glasses, and they're all different sizes, okay? But you fill every one of them up to the brim. And then you ask them, do you feel, you know, a loss, Or do you feel full? Every one of those cups is going to say, I'm full. You know, so we're all, we're going to have different capacities, but we're all going to be filled to the brim. <laughs> That's the wonder of it all. The other wonder of it all is that there's not going to be any sin nature in heaven. So nobody's going to look at Daniel and say, oh, I'm jealous. I wish I shined like he does. You know, we're just not, we're, <laughs> we're not going to care one bit about that. We're just going to all praise the Lord together with our little lights, you know, This little light's going to shine. And that's what we're supposed to do while we're here, aren't we? I mean, he said that we're the light of the world. We're supposed to let our light shine, not hide them under a bushel. So we're going to be doing the same thing throughout heaven uh, with whatever degree of brightness we have. (coughs) Okay, let's look at preservation, verse 4. Gabriel says, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words... And seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. <clears throat> All right, here now we have a turn from the fate of the saints of the last days to the fate of Daniel in his last days. <clears throat> his life is coming to an end. He's, he's pretty old. But he's told here not to concern himself anymore. I mean, this guy's been torn up inside, hasn't he, about Israel's future. Don't concern yourself anymore about all that. I mean, you know, Israel's going to suffer a lot, but he, had, he himself had had a long life of suffering and distress, and he had remained steadfast, uncompromising, and faithful, hadn't he? Throughout all of his years, and here he's basically being told, and he'll be told again, that he's just to continue to do so till your last breath, you know, continue to be faithful. Much of what had been revealed to him was so far in the distant future that the meaning was going to be obscure for centuries until it would grow closer to the time of fulfillment. So he was to record everything, which he did in the end years of his life. He recorded all this, the whole 12 chapters. He was, going to rec- he was supposed to record it so that it would be preserved because once something is in the word of God, what is it? Olam. It's eternal, everlasting word of God, um, and he was going to—he was supposed to write it, and it would be preserved until those times of fuller understanding and literal fulfillment would arrive. Now there is that interesting expression about many running to and fro. You feel like your life is like that sometimes, all the time. All the time. Running to and fro. We must be there in the last days, right? Um, And knowledge being increased. And that has often been taken as a prophecy regarding the massive transportation of the last hundred years or so. Don't we have, I mean, I'm looking at some of it right now (laughs) going to and fro. We've got ships and boats and airplanes and They can go so fast, it's unbelievable, and, you know, so they say, well, that has to do with our day because we're living in a day of massive transportation, and there's definitely a knowledge explosion in our day too, isn't there? And speaking of that, the increase in knowledge, I came across some statistics I wanted to share with you. Did you know that if Facebook was a country, (laughs) it would be the most populous nation in the world? Doesn't surprise you, does it? Uh, Did you know that just one week's worth of information printed in the New York Times, just one week's worth of information, contains more information than the average 18th century person would receive in a lifetime? Wow. Did you know that text messages sent daily far exceed the total population of the earth. What have we got some 7 billion people? Far exceed. I believe that when I look at all the young people, you know. And I'm guilty too. I send a lot of text messages. Did you know this that uh technical information is doubling every 2 years. You know that? I mean, we go from cassettes to CDs to MP3s to thumb drives to who knows what's next. We can't keep up with it, can we? It's doubling every two years, which means that for a college student going for a four-year degree, half of what that student learns by his junior year is already obsolete. It's already outdated. Mm. So, what? Yeah, medical... Yeah, it is, isn't it? A medical profession. Oh, yes. So so we're living in a day of increased knowledge, aren't we? So one interpretation of verse 4 is that the last days will be characterized by lots of amazing transportation, you know, people running to and fro, and a great increase in knowledge. Unfortunately, this is a fact, increased knowledge is not what turns (laughs) men to God. Too bad, but it doesn't ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. It actually distracts them. Oh, doesn't it? it distracts them from God because they begin to well, they're entertained for one thing. <laughs> they're entertaining our young people to death, and they don't. They're not socializing anymore because it's all on the internet and it's all in texting. I could get off on that. Um, but <clears throat> what this what, what happens is that uh, instead of of um, trusting in God and depending on God, they begin, begin to trust in themselves, don't they? And, and the accumulation of knowledge that the world has. And they begin to worship the creation more than the creator. Dr. John Phillips suggested that this phrase may have to do with a new age of enlightened Bible study. Now, I like this one. <laughs> As the time comes, you know, for the prophecies of Daniel to be fulfilled... He proposed that the idea of people, uh, that people will be intensely examining such eschatological books as Daniel. Isn't that what we've been doing for two years? And uh, and Revelation. And they'll be running to and fro in the scripture. (laughs) Comparing scripture with scripture. And coming to greater knowledge about what all these prophecies mean in light of current events. So the yet, yet unfulfilled prophecies will be understood by those who diligently study them when they most need to be understood. That's a second interpretation. Then there's a third one, which is really complicated, and it's based on some Hebrew language technicalities, but it takes the meaning of running to and fro as a reference to turning away from, turning aside from, apostatizing. Revolting, Actually, one edition of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, says that the phrase literally means, till many have gone raving mad. Now, that's a crazy interpretation, isn't it? <laughs> so his conclusion, Dr. Phillips writes this in conclusion about the to and fro and the increased knowledge. He says this, Quote, if we collect these various renderings, we get quite a composite picture of the end times. We see a world of rapid and easy travel in which knowledge is increased. We see a world in which apostasy abounds. Insanity and the need for psychiatric care are prevalent. Mm -hmm. And people who know God pour over the pages of his blessed book, seeking and finding light for the times. That says it perfectly, right? Maybe God did intend all three of those meanings, and that's really when you read that, it's a picture of our day, isn't it? It really is. We are so close. Well, there is no doubt that the fullest understanding of the prophecies of Daniel will be during the great tribulation itself. The book... Will be open. That's why we're going to leave all our Bibles and all our highlighting and all our little notes. Right, we're going to leave them behind for those in the tribulation. <coughs> the books are the Bible's going to be open and studied in detail by those who will be saved during that time. And it will be for them. It will be as though they're reading the, the morning newspaper. Because when they read Daniel and they read Revelation, the events that were described, you know, way back 500 BC. It's going to be like, you know, the reading of things that are taking place right before their very eyes. And Revelation, of course, is going to be, besides Daniel, Revelation will be the other much-studied book during that time. Those are the two apocalyptic books that have been so criticized. And so ignored. Many people don't even study Revelation. You know that, right? A lot of churches don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. They say, well, it's all past history anyway, and who can understand it because it's so so symbolic. And we know what the critics have done to Daniel. But the two books most criticized, most ignored, most misunderstood, and considered pure history are going to be of paramount importance and will likely be the main sources used to lead people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ during the tribulation. Exciting, isn't it? Duration. Let's look at verses 5 to 8. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two. When he says other two, we find out that those are angels. The one on this side of the bank of the river, remember what river he was at when all this began? The Hiddekel, which was the Tigris River. So he sees two angels, one on each side of the river and the other on that side of the bank of the river. Verse 6, and one said to the man clothed in linen. Okay, there's a third, a man clothed in linen. We had seen him before. Last time Daniel saw him, remember what happened? He just he passed out. <laughs> and he had, been, been, he had to be touched three times to strengthen him. Uh, and we talked about the fact that the man clothed in linen. If you're clothed in linen, that's the clothing of the priesthood. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ. We also know it because he swears an uh, oath that only Christ could swear. We're going to look at it now. But this is the pre-incarnate Christ appearing to Daniel for the second time. One, The one said to the man clothed in linen, this is verse 6, which was upon the waters of the river. You know what that means? He's upon the waters of the river. What does that mean? He's on the waters of the river. So when Jesus walked on water, I just have to do this as a joke. But when he walked on water, when he was here in his earthly life, he had already had practice (laughs) walking on water. Of course, in his earthly life, that was even more miraculous because he was in a flesh body and he was walking on water. But anyway, he's on the waters of the river. And one angel asks him a question. He says, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? and wonders is you know all the wonders of the tribulation so it's not a good wonder it's kind of a bad wonder and here's the answer and I heard the man clothed in linen which was upon (laughs) the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven and swear by him that liveth forever that's God he swears by God the Father that it shall be for a time times and a half which is a half a time that's three and a half years and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. And here's what Daniel says. And I heard, he didn't pass out this time, did he? And I heard, but I understood not. Poor Daniel. I didn't understand that verse either until I started studying Uh, then said I, Oh my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? All right, let's stop there for now. At this point, Daniel again looks up and he beholds, there's that man in linen again that he'd seen back in chapter 10. Now there are two other beings with him. They're angels. And he saw them in subordinate places. They're on either. Who's in the middle? Christ Christ is in the middle. They're on, you know, they're subordinate. One on each side. And, um. The middle figure is the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, all three heavenly figures, beings, knew of Daniel's concern about the time frame for Israel's hardships, especially under the evil, unprecedented time of the final king's reign. I mean, they know what's been bothering this prophet for a long time. How long are my people going to suffer? You know, how long is it going to take before they finally repent and get delivered? So one of the angels Ask the question really on behalf of Daniel, and he asks Christ, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Now, in giving his answer, Jesus raises both of his hands and swears by the eternal Father that it would be for three and a half years. We already talked about time, times, and half a time is three and a half years. It's the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th seven of you know, seven years. Well, the Lord not only gave the exact time frame for the great Tribulation, He included a key requirement that must occur before the end can come. And that key will bring the end of Israel's suffering. You know what that key requirement is? When the power of the holy people is shattered. What does that mean? Well, it means that that proud nation... And we have no right to point a finger at Israel because our nation is the same way. Most nations are. But that proud nation must be brought to humble repentance. She must be brought to the place of acknowledging her offenses against God and against his son Jesus. And she must cry out for his return, Hosea 5 and 6. Now that has not been easy because the Israelites... They, they have learned to be strong, right, over the years. They've had to be for survival. But they have, been, they have been a proud and resilient people who rely on their own wisdom and their own strength to survive. But the odds against their survival at the end will be completely overwhelming because all kinds of, we talked about this last time, all kinds of nations together and separately, are going to be coming against her to annihilate her. So she's going to be pushed to the very edge of her extinction. Israel's deliverance will not come because the Lord will make her strong to fight off all of her enemies. That's not what's going to bring her to her deliverance. Her deliverance will come because he will use evil men. This is why he sends Satan down to earth. (laughs) He's going to use evil men to shatter her power, her self-sufficient strength. Now, this biblical principle, and it is a biblical principle, is contrary to human logic, isn't it? But it's completely consistent with God's dealings with men. Salvation doesn't come by way of our strength, does it? Now, a lot of people want it to be that way, and they think if they do good works that they're going to get their own salvation. But it's not by anything we can do. It's through our weakness, our humility, and our repentant acknowledgment uh, that without him we can do nothing. It's being poor in spirit, knowing we're like beggars, you know, reaching out. That's what brings men to faith. Again, I think of the penitent um, publican. You know, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He was poor in spirit, right? He knew. It wasn't his strength like the Pharisee. Oh, God, you're just so lucky to have me. I'm such a great guy. So this is the biblical principle. Before we can be saved, we must be broken. God loves a broken and a contrite spirit, doesn't he, Heart. We must stop trusting in ourselves, and instead we must cast ourselves on the Lord, understanding that all of our good works are nothing but a bunch of filthy rags. Even if we put all our good works in this room together, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans to the Lord. If it was that way, everybody would be in heaven boasting, wouldn't they? Look how I got here. Hmm, how'd you get here? (laughs) All this was, of course, much more than Daniel could understand, and he admitted so in verse 8, but he did still have a great desire to know the outcome of everything for his people, for Israel. So, notice he didn't ask like the angel had asked in verse 6. Daniel didn't say how long, rather he asked what in verse 8. He wanted to know what would be the outcome of all of these wonders, all of these events. What would take place in the end to deliver Israel. And his answer in verse 9 was essentially, we'll get to that, it was essentially a gentle, and his answer comes from Christ, but it was essentially a gentle refusal to give any more information. You're on overload, Daniel. (laughs) You can't take any more. But it does include a message of comfort for Daniel, assuring him, in effect, that God's in control, you know, everything is in his hands. Daniel did not need to worry about understanding every little detail of all the prophecies that he had received. He could simply, and this is true for us, right? He could simply take comfort in knowing God is in control and God is faithful to his people. So let's look at the answer, the completion verses 9 to 13. And he, this is the preincarnate christ said go thy way daniel for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end many shall be purified and made white and tried but the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand but the wise shall understand and from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up. In other words, from the time the Antichrist abominates the temple in the middle of the tribulation, he says there shall be 1,290 days. That's 30 days extra from 1,260 days, which is a time, time, and half a time, three and a half years. This is an extra 30 days, he says, he talks about. And then verse 12, blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the 1,305 and 30 days. So now he adds another 45 days. Blessed is one who comes to the 1,335th day. What all that is talking about, huh? And then he ends, verse 13, but go thy way till the end be for thou shall rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days, the Lord did, you know, He didn't give him more information about the prophecies, but He did additionally share with Daniel the twofold effect on Israel that the coming sufferings would have. First, He says the righteous would be purified by their sufferings. You know, they'd be made white, which speaks of salvation. They would be ready for their Messiah and His kingdom when He came. Second, those who remained unbelieving, even through all the trials of the tribulation, you know, there's going to be those who still have their fist in God's face, knowing that it's his wrath upon them, and they'll, they're just willfully unbelieving, in even in, you know, all that stuff that's going to go on on earth, the, the waters turning to blood, and the the earthquakes and the um, stars falling and the moon looking like blood and the things in the skies skies happening, and on earth there's uh, going to be famines and and uh, plagues and all that, in addition to what the Antichrist is doing, and they still willfully refuse to submit to the one they know is doing it, Christ. Um, so he says that those who remain unbelieving will perish in their sins and eventually face eternal judgment. Understanding the events of the end times will be possible, however, for the wise. The wise, because they will understand God's hand in everything. How do you think they will understand what's going on? Where will they get that knowledge? The word word of God, exactly. We just talked about. They'll be studying the word of God. But the unrighteous will not avail themselves of this book. They'll still be criticizing the scriptures and saying, who needs that? Well, in verses 11 and 12, the Lord gives some additional time frames. Back in verse 7, he had given the time frame for the, uh, the uh, duration of the Antichrist persecution of Israel, which will be three and a half years. That's 1,260 days because the, the Jews had a 30-day month calendar, you know, 360 days. So we know the amount of days, 1,260. But now in verse 11, he speaks of th- these ad- additional 30 days. He says that from the time of the sacrifices and the temple are taken away um, until whatever he's talking about, it will be 1,290 days. And then in verse two, 12, he gives a special blessing for those who actually make it to the 1,335th day, which is another 45 days. So from the time of the abomination of desolation to this blessing— is actually an additional 75 days, because you take 30 and you add 45, and that's 75 days. What in the world is all this about? What's, what are these additional days for? Well, the most reasonable explanation is that those additional days will be needed for the accomplishment of two major judgments that the Lord will have. After he comes back, his second coming, there will be what is called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. You've heard of that? That will be the judgment of the nations and Gentile people, and they're judged based on how they treated Israel and the Jews. You know, if you're willing to give one of his brothers a cup of water, that means you're were, you were a believer. You wouldn't do that otherwise, so that's going to have to take place. And then there's gonna, he's going to be engaged in the regathering and judgment of Israel. Israel, will. the nations will be judged, and Israel will be judged. You know, all the Jews from all over the world will be gathered, and it will be the judgment of Israel, Ezekiel chapter 20. These judgments will involve the living on earth and the need to purge out unbelievers. And, you know, Christ could do that in a second, but he doesn't. It's going to take some time. Also, think about this. The land of Israel will need to be rebuilt from the devastation that it has endured during the tribulation. For that matter, the whole earth is going to need a lot of restoration work, isn't it? Because it's going to be just a mess. And this takes time. So that's really the most reasonable. But in verse 12, he speaks this beatific blessing on those who arrive alive, you know, these, speaking of those living, who arrive at the one 1335th day. They'll be blessed because they'll be the ones that's going to be the official beginning of the millennial kingdom is on that 1335 day. That's when the kingdom begins, the thousand year kingdom. Those who go into that kingdom in their bodies are going to be the ones that survived all those judgments and weren't sent to the lake of fire. So they're going to be very, very blessed, aren't they? Very, very blessed. Well, the prophecies regarding the end times were, for Daniel, a long way off in the distant future, so he really didn't need to learn anymore. He was, the Lord told him, to go his way. Daniel would soon go to his rest, but until then, what was he to do? Keep on keeping on. He was to just do as he had all of his life. You know what? He didn't need to change anything in his last years, because he had lived his entire life in light of eternity, hadn't he? And that wouldn't that be wonderful? At the end of your life, you, you know you know you're maybe going to die soon, and, and you don't have you don't really have to change anything because you've lived for the Lord all along. He's a, he's a challenge for all of us. Has been this whole year, hasn't he? From a teenager to an old man. So the book of Daniel had opened, remember way back in chapter 1, two years ago? It had opened with a description of an event that certainly appeared to be a victory of evil over good. Nebuchadnezzar had besieged Jerusalem. He had robbed the temple of God of all its valuable vessels, in order to put them in the temple to his false god, Marduk, and he had carried off all the young Jewish boys of royalty and nobility in order to brainwash them so that they could serve him in his court as slaves. That looks like a victory of evil over good, right? Of course, Daniel was one of those boys. And we learned in, that, in those first verses that it was God whom, himself, who had actually delivered Israel into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Now, that proud, arrogant young Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, would have laughed if somebody had told him that. No, yeah, this is my doing. He learned later on the truth of that, didn't he? The hard way. (laughs) Um, And the Jews themselves would have had difficulty believing such such a thing, that God delivered them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But nonetheless, it was true, wasn't it? He did it for chastening reasons. They had been turning to idolatry and all other kinds of things, not obeying the Sabbath. Well, now, where are we 12 chapters later? Let's take an account, and this will be real brief, of the good things that were prophetically revealed to Daniel and will be fulfilled in the last days. Here they are. All of the dominating, oppressive, self-centered, Gentile, ungodly kingdoms of earth will be destroyed. All the evil Gentile kings that have ever lived will be replaced by the perfectly righteous and benevolent king of kings. The Antichrist and his false prophet will be dead. Dead, dead, dead. Although suffering in bodies throughout eternity in the lake of fire. Israel will be delivered from annihilation. And she will be delivered spiritually because her sins will be completely atoned for. They have been since the cross, but she hasn't accepted that. Now she will. She will be a nation that knows Christ, so Israel will be a Christian nation. The deceased saints of all the ages will be bodily resurrected and glorified and the curse from the fall will have been, by and large, removed from earth. The kingdom of God and everlasting righteousness will have been established. All that began with what looked like utter defeat and what continued to look like the prince of this world was going to just have one victory after another is going to all end in one moment of time in a sudden great blaze of glory when the smiting stone of chapter 2 and the son of man of chapter 7 arrives on the scene to take back that which is rightfully his Planet Earth, it's his by right of creation, and it's his by right of redemption. So what the Lord said in closing to his beloved, greatly beloved Daniel, and what he says to you and I, and also I threw in what he had said in closing to his apostles, is basically this. He says, go your way until your end comes. And you can rest from your labors. A better day is coming. You will stand again in your own body, which will shine like the brightest star of the heavens. So let not your hearts be troubled. If it were not so, I would have told you. Isn't that great advice? Amen. And that concludes the book of Daniel. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, how truly, truly grateful we are to you that we have learned so much from this great, extraordinary Old Testament book this year and last year. And we have learned that this is all, this, this just is not pie-in-the-sky truths that we have been looking at and studying. This is reality that you have offered to all who believe. It is the truth and the hope which you offer all who are willing to accept it so that after the day of trouble and all the suffering and all the tears that are inevit- inevitable in every one of our lives, after that day of trouble, we still have your tomorrow when we will enter into the fullness of everlasting life in your presence. Thank you, Father, that there is a plan ahead so that as we set our sights upon the fulfillment of that plan, we can have the confidence and the strength and the courage and the hope that is needed to face the trials of today. The words of this beautiful song I want to say at this time, God's tomorrow is a day of gladness and its joy shall never fade No more weeping, no more sadness, no more foes to be afraid. God's tomorrow is a day of greeting. We shall see the Savior's face and our hearts await that meeting in that happy, holy place. God, I ask that you would bless each one here with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and protect and guide all of us through the summer months. I ask that you would bring us back doubled in number in the fall for our next study, whatever that will be, Lord, make it abundantly clear. For we ask all these things in the name of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.